pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of the song we just heard. Thank you for the truth of the songs we've been singing earlier. That in your great love and mercy and grace, you provided Jesus as a perfect Savior, a perfect sacrifice. And he has taken all our sin away. He has removed them as far as the east is from the west. We bear them no more. They will no longer be held against us. We're no longer under your condemnation. We're forgiven by Jesus' blood. And so we thank you that we can remember that in a special way tonight through music and through this text and through taking the Lord's Supper, Lord, just to focus on this incredible price that Jesus was willing to pay to purchase a people for himself. And we're thankful that we are included in that people, that redeemed, blood-bought people. And I pray for anyone who's here tonight who hasn't put their trust in Jesus, that even tonight you would show them their need for a Savior and that Jesus is the perfect one. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Wesley Dodd was convicted of some horrible crimes and sentenced to death by hanging. On the evening that he was to be executed, Randy Alcorn writes, At dinner, both our daughters, Karina, age 11, and Angie, age 13, prayed that Dodd would repent and place his faith in Jesus before he died. I agreed but only because I knew I should. Twelve media representatives were witnesses to the execution. When they emerged 30 minutes after Dodd died, they recounted the experience. One of them read Dodd's last words. I had thought there was no hope and no peace. I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gasps and groans erupted from the gallery. The anger was palpable, which means obvious and unmistakable. How dare someone who has done anything so terrible say he has found hope and peace in Jesus? Did he really think God would let him into heaven after what he had done? Well, our text for this evening is the story of another executed criminal who found peace in Jesus in the last hours of his life. We don't even know his name. We usually just call him the thief on the cross or the penitent thief. We're going to read his story in Luke chapter 23 if you want to turn to that passage. And as you're turning there, I just want to read J.C. Ryle's Description of this man that we'll be reading about. J.C. Ryle was a pastor in the 1800s. I ask anyone to say whether a case could look more hopeless and desperate than that of this thief. He was a wicked man, a thief, if not a murderer. We know this for only such were crucified. He was suffering a just punishment for breaking the laws. 
And he was a dying man. He hung there, nailed to a cross from which he would never come down alive. His hours were numbered. The grave was ready for him. There was but a step between him and death. If ever there was a soul hovering on the brink of hell, it was the soul of this thief. If ever there was a case that seemed lost, gone, and past recovery, it was his. Tom read earlier from Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, that says, The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. So both these thieves, these robbers, were mocking Jesus as they hung on the cross next to him. But at some point, one of them stops insulting Jesus and rebukes the other thief. So if you're in Luke 23, look at verse 39 and 40. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, And rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So here's one dying criminal addressing the other dying criminal and saying, Look, it's almost over. Before the sun sets, they're going to come and break our legs. We're going to take our last breath in this world. And then we're going to stand before God as our judge. Doesn't that put some fear of God in your heart? Don't you care about facing God and entering into eternity? And he adds in verse 41, And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. So we deserve this. We lived as criminals. We're being punished as criminals. We're guilty of wrongdoing. We're suffering the just consequences of our crimes. We deserve to die after what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. The man hanging on the middle cross has done nothing wrong. If you're still in Luke 23, just look at verses 13 through 15. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So both Pilate and Herod acknowledge Jesus is innocent. And of course, the rest of the New Testament tells us that as well. So that means there, he doesn't deserve to die. There must be some other reason he's dying. And the thief on the cross wouldn't have necessarily understood this, but we, by the grace of God, many of us know that Jesus, the righteous one, is dying as a substitute for the unrighteous. 
He who was absolutely sinless is dying in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53 is one of the classic texts written in the Old Testament about the coming sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Or 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So he has no sin of his own. He's innocent. He's taking the sin of guilty people like us on himself. And after talking to the other criminal, the thief then addresses Jesus back in Luke 23, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Matthew Henry calls this a prayer of a dying man to a dying Savior. He believes that Jesus is a king. Jesus sure doesn't look like a king at that moment while he's hanging, mangled on a cross. The only crown he's wearing is a crown of thorns. And he believes that Jesus has a kingdom in the future beyond this world and beyond this life. And he believes that Jesus is merciful. Remember me means look upon me with favor. Think upon me with kindness. Keep me in mind when you come into your kingdom. And it's just worth noting there is nothing this dying thief can do or offer or promise. He can't perform any religious ceremonies or good deeds. He is completely depending on the mercy of Jesus. And so how does Jesus respond to this humble request? Verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Truly, or amen, or verily, is a word Jesus often used before he makes an authoritative statement to emphasize the absolute certainty of what he's about to say. There's no doubt about it. Today, not just someday in the indefinite future, but before this very day is over, you will be with me in paradise. Our bodies will be laid in a grave but our spirits will go to paradise. A synonym for heaven, the dwelling place of God that stresses its indescribable beauty. John Piper wrote this. This is a wonder. Here is a dying man declaring a lifelong thief accepted, loved, and heaven-bound. Here is a grace that sweeps a lifetime of guilt away in an instant. Here is a power that says death can hold neither you nor me. Here is an authority that decides who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Here is an immediacy that says it will happen this very day. 
no purgatory, no testing, no penance, just absolute forgiveness and acquittal and cleansing and acceptance. So how shall we respond to this story from the first Good Friday? Well, first of all, if you never have, look to Jesus for mercy to save you. No matter how bad you have been, no matter how long you've been away from God, Jesus promises in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. No one is disqualified because you're so bad. Shelley's saying, the dying thief, that's the man we've been talking about tonight, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, do you know what vile means? Morally despicable. can wash away all my sins. So trust in Jesus. Believe in his death that we're celebrating tonight is the only thing that can wash away your sin. And for those who are trusting in Jesus this evening, remember what Paul says in Romans 5. Let's turn to that passage. Romans chapter 5. Start at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul isn't just talking about criminals there. When he talks about helpless and ungodly and sinners And enemies, that's us. That's every one of us. No exceptions. All of us totally deserve God's wrath. All of us are completely dependent on God's mercy. And so instead of thinking tonight, isn't it wonderful that Jesus saved a big sinner like the thief on the cross? Or maybe even Wesley Dodd. Who knows? Only God knows that one. But we do know this one. Let's say from the depth of our heart, isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus saved a big sinner like me? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we say with Paul, (laughs) we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our only hope. That's our only plea of forgiveness and right standing with you. Thank you that Jesus did everything, paid everything, accomplished it all. It's finished because he was the perfect Savior. So again, I thank you, and many of us thank you that his blood availed for me, that we know we have this blessed assurance Jesus is ours, his 
death is applied to our case. Our sins put on him, his righteousness placed on us. We're at peace with you because of Jesus. And so we give you everlasting thanks for that. And I pray again for anyone who's here, maybe feeling as vile as the thief on the cross, maybe feeling pretty good about themselves, but either way, Lord, they need Jesus. And I pray that you would open their eyes to see how desperately they need him. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing the power of the cross as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.
Good Friday is an annual reminder for us to stop and deliberately remember the death of Christ. But Jesus knew we would need to be reminded more than once a year. And so he established the Lord's Supper as a more regular reminder of his death and what it accomplished for us. As we take part this evening, let's reflect on one of the new covenant promises that he purchased with his blood. So when Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, it means I bought this promise from the new covenant that's in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 36. I bought that with this blood I'm going to shed. Eight, Hebrews 8.13 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So the reason that's true is because Jesus shed his blood to purchase that promise, that reality. So if you are trusting in Jesus this evening for your forgiveness of sin, you are welcome to join us as we take part. Before we participate, we're instructed to examine ourselves, and so we want to take a few moments to just ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and just see if there's anything that we need to take care of with the Lord before we to the Lord's table. So let's take a few moments to do that.
So let me just walk through the instructions again in case you're unfamiliar with the way we've been doing it lately. Um, you all should have one of these cups, and there's two sides to it. So we're going to be starting with the side that has the little wafer in it. So go ahead and open that. And then I'm going to be reading scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. One of the elders will pray, and then we'll take the wafer, and then we'll start over. We'll open the juice side. I'll read a scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. The other elder will pray, and then we'll take the cup together. So 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, 